0: Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel, according to Matthew, actually Matthew chapter eleven. We just finished a study in the book of 1 Peter and we're returning to the Gospel of Matthew and to uh, what many have noted is the third neck or the next uh, third major section of the book. Uh, there are five major uh, teaching sections in the book that end each of the five portions and uh, We'll see over the coming months, uh, uh, as we move towards chapter 13 in the parables, uh, that 11 and 12 lead us to 13, and we'll take that chunk of material together. Now here, in Matthew 11, verses 1 to 6, the subject is doubt. Through a question uh, that John the Baptist makes, the Apostle Matthew raises the subject of uncertainty and perplexity or doubt in the Christian life. Let me invite you to give your attention to that subject in the reading of God's holy and inspired word from Matthew 11, verses one to six. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls thirst for you, and our bodies long for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we have beheld your glory and tasted your love in Christ. Grant that we would taste it all the more. Be our teacher and bless us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. The TV show, To Tell the Truth, it's a show where three people are pitted against a panel of inquisitors. One of the three is who they say they are, and the other two are imposters uh, lying and saying they're also that third person. And so the panel competes uh, to figure out who's the genuine article by a series of questions and inferences and guesses, I suppose. And once the votes are in, the host asks the question, will the real so-and-so please stand up? Well, that's actually what's going on in all of Matthew chapter 11. Will the real Messiah please stand up? And how will we know him when we see him? And in every paragraph, as we're going to see, Matthew is going to seek to prove to us, to convince us, even to assure us that Jesus is, in fact, the true Messiah. And he begins with the doubts of John. And uh, it's quite possible you and I are likewise, uh, if we're honest, uh, to on occasion have our own doubts about various things. And, and he encourages us to bring them to God and to his word to seek answers and to get reassurance. And so let me invite you to think about this subject under three questions. First of all, who is it that's doubting Second, why does he have these doubts? And thirdly, how does Jesus answer these doubts and thereby strengthen his faith? So the first thing, who who is it that's doubting here? Well, it's John the Baptist. At verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or... Shall we look for another? Now, it may seem straightforward that John is asking these questions of Jesus. But uh, just so you're aware, there are a great number of really outstanding theologians throughout the entire history of the church. And if you just thought of some, those are probably some of the folks who would argue and have that that actually John himself didn't have doubts, that what John did is sent his disciples who had doubts to ask for their own sake, but not for John's sake because the disciples needed to be reassured, the disciples of John. The reason folks will argue that way is generally speaking to protect John's reputation they dismissed the idea out of hand that a man like John would have had doubts. I mean, after all, this is the cousin of Jesus who leapt in his mother's womb when a pregnant Elizabeth encountered a pregnant Mary, and he was in the presence of his Savior, Jesus. This is John who baptized Jesus in the wilderness and heard the voice from heaven speak, this of Jesus is my beloved son, and with him I'm well pleased. This is the prophet who saw Jesus walking and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is John who we'll see next week, Lord willing, at verse 11, Jesus compliments when he says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And because of all those things, many wish to divert from the notion that John Had questions and perplexities and lacked assurance and needed reassurance that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. But how does the passage read? Verse 2 John sent word by his disciples, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John is part of that we, and notice how Jesus responds, not Not let me assure you men I am the Messiah, but go and tell John what you hear and see. Make sure John gets the word. Why? Because John asked the question. Why? Because John needed reassurance. What do we learn from this? That even the strongest believer in the Lord Jesus as Messiah may struggle with doubts that even the most mature believer may have serious questions. In fact, in the Bible, time and again, it's believers who raise these questions, who have these uncertainties and perplexities and failures of confidence in God and in the Messiah. I mean, think of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, running for his life from Mount Carmel, being hunted by wicked Jezebel, hiding out in a cave, complaining to the Lord that he and he only was left among the people of God and hadn't bowed the knee to the pagan deity Baal. And therefore he was discouraged and he ought to just die is how he felt about it. And the Lord had to do what? Had to reassure him that the Lord was in fact still ruling the universe, that God was on his throne, that he was preserving his people, that there were in fact 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal and Elijah wasn't alone, and God's kingdom hadn't been thwarted, and God's purposes hadn't been stopped. But Elijah had all but given up hope. Or think of doubting Thomas in the New Testament, who was no Judas, who did trust Jesus, and precisely because he believed Jesus was the Messiah, he was so grieved when. There was the turn of events and Jesus was arrested and beaten, tortured and crucified and died and buried. And and so he was filled with uncertainty and disbelief when the other disciples came to him and said, we've seen the risen Lord. Somehow, like the rest of the disciples who were surprised when they saw the risen Lord, They hadn't understood Jesus when he had time and again explicitly told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise. And so when Jesus did rise, and Thomas missed that first appearance because he wasn't with the other disciples, he wouldn't believe them when they told him. He believed in Jesus, but he doubted the resurrection until Jesus reassured him. Or think of yourselves. Some of you believers here today, trusting in Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, have at times scratched your head and wondered, is Jesus really on the throne of the universe, governing all things for the good of his people? Is he really a good God? Is he really committed to doing good to me? Is he really working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Did he really rise from the dead and vanquish death itself so that our hope in him is not misplaced? So that we haven't believed in vain? Is it really true And did he really, truly die for all my sins? Or has my last sin been the last straw? And whereas before that sin, I could be confident that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But now that I've committed this one more sin, I lack all assurance that my Savior really saves Sometimes we say to ourselves, I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. That's the cry of every believer. It's, uh, as another put it, it's as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed to it before you begin to question it. And so, uh, not to be morbid, but I think we can all be glad and take comfort in the doubts of John the Baptist, as troubling as they would have been to him, because it teaches us that it is possible to be a genuine believer and lack confidence, lack certainty, lack assurance in Jesus. And so it is, theologically speaking, if anybody ever comes to you and says, you know, uh, constant and complete assurance is the hallmark or essence of genuine faith then you can take them to Matthew chapter 11 and the story of John the Baptist and say, case closed. Even John has times in his Christian experience, if we can speak of him, so to speak, a believer in the Messiah in which he struggles with faith. So don't be surprised by your doubts. John had his own. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing is, why did John have these doubts? Well, first, let me tell you why I think he didn't have these doubts. And it's a reason, I bring it up pastorally, because it's a reason some people do begin to have doubts. I heard of another pastor who, when a student in his church came home from college at holiday and began to raise doubts about Jesus or about Christianity or about the truth of the Bible, the things he'd been taught in his youth, the first question he would ask them is this, are you sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Now, he wasn't trying to be mean, but pastorally speaking, he was trying to love that person. And in his experience, time and again, the fact was that people who are running away from God are so often the folks who are beginning to ask, is this thing even true? And one of the reasons for that is because we don't want it to be true when we're running from God. And sometimes we we just want what God has forbidden. And so we begin to ask the question uh, that Adam and Eve were encouraged by the serpent to ask in the garden. What question was that? Has God really said? The, the devil, seeking to deceive Adam and Eve and get them to join him in the rebellion of, against God, insinuated that God isn't true, that God isn't good, that you can't trust God, that you can't believe that he's a good heavenly father who wants you to live with him under his roof in blessing. Oh, no, 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 no. You need to go your own way. You need to do your own thing. And so often that's the case for us. When we go our own way, we begin to doubt the truth of Christianity. But so often we, uh, we ask that, whereas Adam and Eve were deceived by asking that question and answering it incorrectly on the front hand, and then they went astray. And we might do that too. So often it's on the back end having given our hearts to rebellion, then our minds and our hearts are troubled by the truth and the contradiction of our lives. And so we call into question everything that we've been taught. And I just want to say, while that is pastorally something that happens with people, and I've seen it too, that's not John's issue. That's not why John is asking these questions. He isn't running from God. He's walking with God, but he still has these doubts. Why? I think the passage suggests a few reasons. Uh, Let me give you a couple of them. In the first place, doubts may arise when we misunderstand the ministry of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, I think there's a reason this passage begins with verse 1, where it says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. It seems like maybe just like an insignificant statement about the ministry of Jesus, or maybe it's just one so common in the Gospels we overlook its importance. But what is it that Matthew is telling us about the ministry of Jesus, and how might that actually contribute to John's doubts? Well, what's Matthew doing? He's showing us the centrality of preaching and teaching in the ministry of Jesus, in gospel ministry. In chapter 10, if you remember that chapter, he told his disciples how to go out on mission and preach the good news. Then in chapter 11, he goes and he leaves them and he goes himself into the cities to preach the good news. But think of John. John's languishing in prison. John, the forerunner of Jesus, is, is in God's mysterious providence taken off the scene. He's been replaced, so to speak, by these 12 apostles of Jesus who are going to share in the ministry of Jesus. And he's scratching his head, and he's wondering about this message, this message of the disciples, this message of Jesus. So unlike the message of John. What do I mean by that? Well, look, I mean, to be sure... They all preached the same message. Each, the, Matthew goes out of his way to say, John preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, he, he told the disciples, repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. And I say to you, repent, turn, turn to God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the same message in that sense, but John's ministry was certainly focused on denouncing the sins of the people and warning them of the judgment to come. Remember his words in Matthew 3, he rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Or John 3 verse 12, He warned them about the ministry of the Messiah. He said the Messiah will do this. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John was expecting the Messiah to come and to do that. To bring justice in the world, in other words, to clear the decks, wipe out the hypocrites, destroy the enemies of Israel, conquer the Roman usurpers, bring the wrath of God in judgment to the world, to liberate God's people and bring them into a life of true justice and righteousness. And John's looking at around, and Jesus is out preaching and teaching, and he's in prison, oppressed. And he's wondering, where are are the works of the Messiah? Where is this Messiah I've been waiting for? Why is he preaching good news, not exercising power and authority to remake the world in justice? And frankly, I just want to say that that may be the question some of you are asking. Why Jesus, if you are a righteous God, and he is Why do you let so many do so many violent and vile things upon the earth? Why why does wickedness abound? Why do we keep hurting one another and God lets it go on? Why don't you put a stop to it, God? And isn't that what the Messiah was supposed to come and do? And I think John emphasized and understood supremely one aspect of the Messiah's overall work, but perhaps misunderstood the mercy, the compassion, the patience, and the gracious aspects of the ministry of Jesus, even preaching good news And so John began to wonder, is there somebody else coming after you, or are you it? Because he, I think, misunderstood the ministry of Jesus. But also, secondly, I think doubts may arise when we're in difficult and unexpected circumstances ourselves. Notice this language, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word. So where is he? He's uh, he's in prison. Uh, He had preached that the Messiah is going to set things right in Israel. He's going to purify Israel. He'll bring judgment on the wicked. He'll release those who are oppressed and restore order in the land. And John doesn't see the Sadducees and the Pharisees being kicked out of the Sanhedrin. John doesn't see the Romans being kicked out of Judea. And he is in prison. He has not been set free. And I think understandably his, he'd be a bit disappointed and perhaps his ho- hopes would be crushed. And I just want to say that if you're in a place like that where you're disappointed and your hopes are crushed, it, it's not surprising if in those kinds of circumstances you begin to doubt. I'm not saying our faith is founded upon good circumstances? The only warrant to believe in Jesus if things are going well, I'm not saying that. Our faith is not established upon good circumstances, but it would, I think, be silly to say our circumstances have no effect or no bearing on how we respond in faith or doubt. Because faith can be tested by these things, as we saw in 1 Peter. And yes, God aims to refine our faith and to purify it. And it'd be a difficult place to be. And and here, John is in a gloomy prison. It's about five, Josephus, the ancient historian, tells us he was in the prison that's about five miles east of the Dead Sea, one of the palaces of Herod Antipas, uh, and probably in a dungeon underground and so his ministry seems to be cut off he's not able to do what he wants to do but but of course he's exactly where God wants him to do exactly what God wants him to do in ministry which is ask this question that we might hear Jesus answer but undoubtedly John wouldn't have thought of it like that I don't think he's a prisoner of uh one of the grossest, most immoral adulterers of his generation, Herod Antipas. And he's wondering, what's the deal? (laughs) What gives? I mean, not only have you not said everything right in Israel, but I'm stuck in this miserable place and I'm a man of the wilderness, right? I love the open skies. I eat the locusts and the wild honey. He's probably... I think it's not unfair to speculate, as an adult male, probably had never lived in a home since his youth, being raised in one. And now now I'm in a dungeon, I'm in darkness, perhaps underground. And that must have been a kind of agony for him. Can you imagine how restless he would be? How galled he would be by the wicked Herod having such authority and power over the forerunner of the Messiah. And so it is that sometimes in our darkest uh, places, uh, we may begin to have doubts too. You may be there right now. Mm. Things may be hard for you, and it's the occasion for you to doubt the Lord's goodness to you, to doubt that the Lord really loves you, that the Lord really is committed to doing good for you and that all things work together for your good because Jesus rules and Jesus reigns and Jesus is on his throne and things are not out of his control. Or maybe you're doubting that Jesus really knows uh, your experience, that he has any understanding at all of what it's like to be you. And you're doubting that he can sympathize. You're doubting whether he he genuinely cares or knows how to help you. Or if he knows and he cares that he has power to do anything about it because thus far he has not exercised his power in a way that would have pleased you. Now I want to say this about John. John's got these... Doubts, maybe because of hard circumstances, maybe because of misunderstanding the ministry of the Messiah, but John at least knows one thing true, and that is where to go to get an answer for his doubts, right? Where did he go? He went to the Lord himself. He says, Jesus, I I believe you're the Messiah, but am I wrong in believing that? He goes right to the source of reassurance. He doesn't sit around speculating in his head about whether these things are true. And he doesn't uh, consult merely with uh, his own disciples and kind of gather up their opinions. And, you know, go, all right, well, five of you think so and four of you don't. And, you know, well, you know, the odds are kind of not so great. He doesn't, certainly he doesn't go to those who reject the Messiah and say, tell me more about why you don't believe so that, uh, well, I can follow you in your doubts. And, uh, and I, I just want to say, by word of caution in our own day, beware of imbibing the spirit of rejection, the mindset of rejection of those who are in our day are loudly pronouncing their rejection of Jesus. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Have you run into these... Um, deconversion stories, people who grew up in the church, people who gained a name for themselves in the church and then have turned their back on Jesus. And instead of quietly disappearing, uh, they are cashing in on their newfound faith in themselves. They're writing books to sell. They're making podcasts for profit. They have perhaps traded in religion their entire career. And this is just one different expression of it. Now look, I'm not saying turn a blind eye to the honest, legitimate questions that our non-Christian neighbors have. One of the way we, ways we can love people that have questions is to seek to answer those questions, which means we, we need to be listening. We need to be asking, you know, why don't people believe? But there are certain folks who are loudly leaving And not because they're they're asking questions because they want to follow Jesus. They're raising their doubts publicly because they want you to follow them. So be warned. So John, though, takes his doubts to the source, to the Lord himself. And he's a good example for us in that. Go to the Lord with your doubts, not to his opponents, and go to the Bible with your doubts, not to people who are further down the road of doubting. And say to God, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And John knows the right question to ask, too, doesn't he? Not only the right person to ask, but the right question. Are you, Jesus, the Messiah? And this is everything. This is what everything else depends on. It's the ultimate question. It's the best question you A man or a woman or a boy or a girl could ever ask God is Jesus the Messiah because he either is or he isn't and you can't just fiddle around with it and pretend like that question doesn't matter it matters for your everlasting happiness or sadness how you answer that question John asked that question, are you him, the coming one? Well, John has these doubts. I think there's some good reasons why he had these doubts and he went to the source for the answers. And how does Jesus reassure him then and thereby strengthen his faith Faith and ours too, verses 4 to 6. Jesus answers our doubts and strengthens our faith by pointing us to the word of God and the mission of the Messiah. Notice this language of verse four, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. I mean, these things aren't hidden from you. I did them publicly. What? The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus, in other words, what he does is he turns John and his disciples to the scriptures, actually. He is referencing and partially quoting both Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6, says this. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, so there's a coming one. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Jesus is saying, would you look at Isaiah's prophecy? Would you look at the scriptures you've been given and ask yourself, what have you seen me do? what have you heard me do? What do the scriptures say the Messiah will do? Am I not he? He invites them to draw draw the conclusion. You know, there's no Old Testament example of anyone ever healing a person of blindness. And then you get Jesus, and it's the most common miracle he does. Do you know that it was understood by ancient Israel that no, there was no human cure for leprosy and Jesus just says the word and people are cured. Now notice, if you, paid attention, if you were listening, and I'll reiterate it, that Isaiah 35 passage, uh, notice there are two notes in that passage, a note of judgment and a note of mercy. He said, God will come with vengeance. That's true. And he will come and save you. So the blind eyes will be opened and the deaf will hear and the dead will rise, right? So John was looking for the first part. Jesus says, don't miss the second Then also Jesus points him to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, because in his quotation, listen to this, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This is a passage, Isaiah 61, Jesus read in the synagogue in his hometown, and then said today it is fulfilled in your hearing. Interestingly, when Jesus read that passage, he didn't quote the last part. He stopped at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because the purpose of his first coming was mercy. It is the purpose of his second coming to bring in final justice under the vengeance of God. So what's Jesus doing? He's pointing John to the scriptures. He's saying, John, I am the one you're waiting for. But he's forcing John to wrestle with the Bible about it to apply his mind to the meaning of scripture. And so we see doubts aren't all bad unless you let them fester and never seek answers. If you let them fester and never seek answers from God and his word, those doubts may grow. But doubts can be used for your good if they lead you to a more faithful understanding of God and the Messiah and his plan and his purposes. Sometimes what we want from God is that he'll write the words in the sky uh, like a plane, right? Writing with whatever that chemical is. (laughs) And God says, now, have you read Isaiah? Have you looked at what he said the Messiah would be? And have you looked at what I did? Would you look at at the 12 disciples who saw and heard me do these things and gave their lives saying 'He, he is it? He's the Messiah? Have you opened my word seeking answers to your questions? Jesus is saying to John and to us, I'm a little different than you think I am. I am better than you expected me to be. You expected me to come and just blast away. And I came to be gracious and compassionate and merciful, better than you knew. And so Jesus concludes, blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me, who doesn't stumble over me. In other words, who doesn't look at me and misunderstand who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is supposed to do. It's it's a kind of tender encouragement to John here and a tender rebuke to John. John, he's saying, don't stumble over me. I'm better than you thought I was. I am more merciful and compassionate than you think I am. And so I just, as we close, ask you the question, what is it you're looking for? Do you want Jesus to be who he is not? Do you want Jesus to be who he is? If John can struggle, you can struggle. If John can struggle, you will struggle. And if not now... You may in the days ahead. And you need to know that in your weakness and in your doubts, you have a Savior who is patient, long-suffering, gracious, and kind, who answers your doubts better than you could hope. Take your doubts to him. Let's pray. Father grant us a heart to just call out to you. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Be gracious to me. Be merciful to me. Teach me your truth. Your word is truth. Grant that the truth would set me free. Give us a heart like that and lift Jesus before our eyes. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.